let us pray. So, Father, we do indeed pray that glory and praise and honor and wisdom and strength would be ascribed to you now and forever. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you, and good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. So glad that you've joined us as well. And um, we miss seeing you in person, but we're glad you have the live stream option. Just want to thank everyone for um, taking a tour of the prayer center last week. We had, from what I understand, um, a bumper crowd after both first and second service last week touring the prayer center. And thanks to Mother Valerie and her team for um, facilitating that, and to Brianna Grant and her team for making some wonderful refreshments over there as well. And the really exciting thing about that is not only did folks tour the prayer center, but um, it was very evident this week as I was at the church at different times of the day in the evening that the prayer center is being used more than it has been used in a long time. And I am very grateful for that. It came through during the day, and even uh, last Wednesday night, I'd had a meeting and came back by the church about 9.30, and there were two or three cars outside the prayer room last Wednesday night. So, so thank you all as we pray and lean into God's will and direction in this season. Um, if you didn't get a chance or an opportunity to tour the prayer center last week, we can still facilitate that. So see me, contact the church office, and we'll be glad to do that. And if you need um, the code, I don't give it on the live stream because it's then posted on the website and accessible essentially to everyone in the whole world, but the prayer center, there's a code to the door, it's an outside door, and it is um, accessible 24-7. So um, please, if you would like to use the prayer center and don't have that door code, um, just contact the church office and we'll be glad to share that with you. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them to the 12th chapter of Genesis, verses 1 through 9, our Old Testament reading for this morning. For the next few Sundays as we move through Lent, I felt led to focus on our Old Testament reading, so um, beginning with Genesis today. Genesis verses 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9 are arguably the most significant verses in all of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, because they establish the theological trajectory for all of Genesis. Furthermore, they bind together the earlier primeval history of Genesis, which encompasses the creation and fall of humanity, the flood and Noah's deliverance and the Tower of Babel, with the subsequent history of the patriarchs of Israel. And the central focus of these verses, 1 through 9 of Genesis chapter 12, is God's call to Abraham. It's a call that has command with it, and it also is a call of promise. God's command to Abraham, still Abram at this time, was very simple and straightforward. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. While simple and straightforward, this command was at the same time an immense test of faith and obedience. Of a magnitude really that we don't really connect with or fully grasp living in the 21st century. God's command to go is threefold. Go from your country, go from your kindred or family, go from your father's house. 
So the progression moves from that which is broad and cultural to that which is intensely personal. Your father's house, your immediate family. This is a call to Abraham to radically abandon all of his natural roots and ties, to leave everything behind and entrust himself to God's guidance. To put this in perspective, this is a call to walk away from everything and essentially everyone, the world he's known for his entire life, never to see that world or those people. Again, remember, um, this is a time when transportation wasn't easy. It's not like you could hop in a car or a plane or a train. Uh, no communication, no mail service, let alone electronic communication. As Old Testament scholar and theologian Gerhard von Rad says about this, throughout the entire story, one must remember that to leave home and to break ancestral bonds was to expect of ancient men almost the impossible. In leaving, Abraham is saying goodbye to his family and everything which he has ever known. And on top of this, God doesn't tell him where he's going, does he? He doesn't tell him. He simply says, go to the land that I will show you. And when we really begin to ponder the magnitude of this call, it is indeed pretty overwhelming. God simply points Abraham in the right direction, but the end is unclear. However, with obedience to God's call and command also come great promises to Abraham. And there are four that I want to talk about, each of which is a promise and mark of God's blessing. The first is this. I will make you a great nation. Now, it's important to note the specific nature of this promise. God doesn't say that he will make Abraham a great people group, but a nation. And the wording is very specific here in the Hebrew. A nation, Old Testament Israel, a political, spiritual, and geographic entity with common land, language, and government. Second, I will bless you. Now, that's pretty self-explanatory. God's hand of favor is resting upon Abraham in his obedience. Third, I will make your name great. Notice here, God, not Abraham, will do this. God will make Abraham's name great. And this is a clear and intentional contrast to the episode with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Remember what happens there? The people engage in this vain attempt, the people of Babel, to, to make themselves great, to be great through human-focused efforts, people trying to build themselves up and make a name for themselves. In stark contrast, it is Abraham, excuse me, it is God who builds up Abraham, not his own efforts or achievements, not his desire for personal gain and human greatness, but God. And then fourthly, and we'll spend a little bit more time on this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham is more than a recipient of blessings, although he is blessed, and that is quite evident. 
Victor Hamilton puts it this way in his commentary on this text, Abraham is both a receptacle for divine blessing and a transmitter of that blessing. God makes clear that his relationship to others will be determined by the relationship of these others to Abraham. And God promises to Abraham to bring both salvation and judgment into human history in new ways. Now follow along with me here with the thinking of this. Human salvation and judgment are determined by one's attitude toward this work which God began in history through Abraham, a work that led to Jesus Christ, God and Messiah coming into the world to redeem fallen humanity. The fulfillment of the promises God begins in Abraham extend and find their complete fulfillment, not under the old covenant, but beyond the old covenant, even as the witnesses of the new covenant attest. Hear what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what is God saying to us right now in all of this? I think one thing is this question, can we trust God in this way? Can we trust God in the way that Abraham trusted him when God called Abraham to indeed trust him? Can we trust him with our lives, with our resources, our futures? Can we trust God with all that we are. You know, we tend to sanitize the humanity of the heroes of the faith, both in scripture and down through church history, as if they had no experience of human concern or apprehension or anxiety or fear. And that's simply not true. The heroes of the faith were men and women with feet of clay and fully human, just like you and I are. And and certainly they had anxiety and apprehension. And at times they were flat out scared. And yet by the grace of God and their submission to the will of God, God enabled them to move beyond those human fears, to move beyond those human frailties, to accomplish great things for his name in his power by his sustaining grace. God calls to disciples of Jesus he calls to us in a no less radical way. For indeed, Jesus also calls his disciples, just like Abraham, to forsake the things of this world and follow him. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke 9, 61 through 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. 
And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And finally, Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus calls his followers to relinquish the things of this world and follow him alone. It's critical that we understand, moving back to Abraham here, that the blessing in Genesis 12 was contingent upon Abraham first stepping out in trust and obedience. Now, full confession here, um, chief of sinners with this, I like to have my ducks in a row. I like to plan. I like to know not just what's next, but the next three or four or five or six or 15 steps down the road. Is there anyone else in here who can relate to that? Yes. Yes. And yet, so often, God kind of rearranges those ducks or even even sinks a few of them, doesn't he? Anybody else that can relate to that? Remember coming out of seminary, I had it all figured out. I was going to be an associate pastor this is in our former denomination. And about after three years, I was going to become a senior pastor. Then I was going to begin a doctor in ministry program at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in expository preaching. I was going to have that. By my seventh year out of seminary, I was going to have all of that under my belt. I had it all figured out. Then God called us to plant a church. <laughs> And then down the road after that, God called us to become Anglicans. And it's all been wonderful. It's had challenges, yes. But in my life and in my experience, I know, and I'm well aware of this, and yet I have to be reminded of it over and over, um, God has a way of calling me or pushing me and leading me into things where I can't have my ducks in a row. And when I am willing to acknowledge it, it's in my best interest because that's what I need to be able to trust him more fully and see his hand so that Scott doesn't take credit for coming up with this plan and these steps. God often, more often than not, rearranges things so that we don't have our ducks in a row in terms of our human planning. Um, High school reunions are a perfect example of this. If you go and you meet folks, say, 25 years out, and they were going to do this, 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 and this, and they had it all planned out for the first 20 or 25 years after graduating from high school. It is exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare to see those folks doing what they thought they would be doing in life, looking just like what they thought it would look like 20 or 25 years out. In this season of Lent, in these 40 days, how is God calling you and me to trust him in greater measure? This question, how is God calling us to trust him in greater measure? How is God calling us to trust him in fresh ways? Should very much be a part of how we are praying, both individually and as a church family in this season. In what greater or new ways is he calling you and me to die to self, to die to self-will, to die to personal plans we're holding too tightly to, 
to die to personal agendas? And how is he calling us to die to any human efforts to make a name for ourselves through our own efforts? And conversely, what is God calling you and me to step into out of pure obedience to him? Even if we don't know the whole picture, even if we really don't have a clue where the road will ultimately lead. Can we trust him that much? Can we? Christian author Palmer Chinchin in his book, True Religion, which was published by David C. Cook Publishing a few years ago, writes this. My brothers and I had traveled to the western edge of Zimbabwe to raft the Zambezi River. We boarded our raft at the base of Victoria Falls. Massive amounts of water spilled over the top of the giant falls and dropped almost a thousand feet. The roar was deafening. The falls are the largest in the world, more than a mile wide and 300 feet high. Mist from that spray fills the air like a fog and can be seen for 50 miles. The locals call it smoke that thunders. The water from the falls rushes down the gorge in torrents, creating the world's largest rapids. Now, in the United States, the highest class rapid you are allowed to raft is a class five. The Zambezi's whitewater rapids can top a class seven or eight. As I sat on the edge of the eight-person raft, all suited up in a tight, overstuffed jacket and a thick crash helmet, I felt like an overcautious tourist about to mount an overpowered moped in Honolulu or rent rollerblades in Huntington Beach. The Zambezi can't be that dangerous, can it, I thought. But then our guide said, when the raft flips, there was no if the raft flips or on the off chance we get flipped, but when the raft flips. And he went on, stay in the rough water. You will be tempted to swim toward the stagnant water at the edge of the banks. Don't do it because it is in the stagnant water that the crocs wait for you. They are large and hungry. Even when the raft flips, stay in the rough water. And then Chinchin continues, stagnancy will kill your spirit. The church of tomorrow must resist stagnancy. God needs us out there in the rough waters, pouring our lives into people. Live in the white water. Live where it's just a little bit uncertain and unsafe. Indeed, God calls you and me not to swim or move to that place of ease and stagnation, but to stay in the waters, to stay where he is working, where we have to depend on him for strength and protection and sustenance and guidance. Well, that's all true for you and me individually. But what about for us at All Saints Church as a church family? What about us collectively? Yes, we are called by God to act responsibly and to strategize and to plan, but it can't be simply human strategizing and planning. It must be bathed in prayer and the leading of God's voice and God's spirit. And God is also calling us as a church to die to ourselves, just like he calls us as individuals. He's calling us to die to ourselves 
to our own collective human will, to our personal agendas and what we think God ought to do or what we think church ought to look like. And the question is, as he calls us to these things that are beyond ourselves, that are impossible in our flesh, can we trust him? Can we collect, trust him with our collective future? Can we collect, trust him collectively for his will? Can we trust him for great things which he, God, wants to do and which he alone is able to accomplish? Are we willing to stay in the discomfort of the fast-flowing water, which is the center of God's will? Experiencing God's blessings and provision as a reality is always tethered. It's always linked to stepping out in trust and obedience. God issued the call to Abraham, the command, but the promised blessings and experiences of God's provision were contingent upon him stepping out in obedience. You follow that? God issued the call, but the provision for blessing wasn't activated until he stepped out in obedience. It's like people will say sometimes, oh, I could never go through that or I could never do that. We don't know that because until we are faced with a particular circumstance or situation or challenge or insurmountable obstacle in life or ministry, until that moment comes, God doesn't make the grace available that's needed for that moment. But in that moment, as we look to him, as we trust him, as we call upon his name, as we submit and surrender to his purposes, he pours in his grace and his strength and his power and his peace for that moment. God indeed does give commands, even as he gave to Abraham, and they come with promise. But let's also look very briefly then, and secondly, at Abraham's faith-filled response. Abraham did indeed go in faith. As we continue reading, we see him stepping out in obedience to God's call in verse 4 in the beginning of verse 5. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So Abraham went in faith. But the second thing we see here is that Abraham worshipped in faith. Two things here. First, in close relationship to what we've already discussed, look at the beginning of verse 7. To your offspring, I will give this land. Again, to quote Victor Hamilton and his commentary on Genesis, he says, interestingly, the promise to give the land to Abram follows the promise to show the land to Abraham and show, here this, show becomes give only when Abram makes his move. Only when Abram steps out, trusting God. And the second thing we must not miss, God continues to guide Abraham, and he more fully reveals himself to Abraham, his obedient servant. Again, look back to verse 1. In verse 1, we read, God spoke to Abraham. He called him. But now in verse 7, 
the Lord appears to Abraham. God reveals himself to Abraham in some physical, visible way, although scripture doesn't give the specific details. The principle here is that greater obedience, here this greater obedience will lead to greater intimacy and more profound leading by God in doing his will. In other words, the more we press into God, the more we seek to have our hearts conform to him and obedience to his will and his plans and his purposes, the more we walk closely with God, the more deeply he will lead us in his will. That applies to us as individuals, as families. It also applies to us collectively as a church family. And what is Abraham's response to all of this? If we look at the account, each time God led Abraham more fully and he reached another key point in his journey, what did Abraham do? He built an altar. He stopped. He took time to purposefully offer God worship. It's a lesson there to be learned for all of us. When God leads us, when God brings us in obedience to his will to a key juncture in life, in a, to a key juncture in the life of our church or ministry, we need to stop and intentionally offer worship to God. The other thing Abraham did, he left the altar standing. Even as he moved on, he left those altars standing in Canaan and in his journey in, a, in an area filled with false gods, filled with false religions, filled with paganism. He left those altars as a visible testimony to the faithfulness and the fidelity of the one true God. And as God calls us, into his future for us. He also is calling us to make sure when we worship that we, in a sense, figuratively leave those altars, those marks, those stones of testimony, if you will. This is what God has done. This is what God has brought us to. Praised be his holy name. God indeed did call Abraham. God indeed did call Abraham with great promise. But Abraham had to step out in trust and in faith and let go of the stuff that felt secure that he was holding on to. God calls you and me through Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. He calls his church to nothing less. May we step out. May we trust God. Even in what may feel like turbulent waters that might be a little uncomfortable or a whole lot uncomfortable because God is taking us to new and fresh places in him and new and fresh places in ministry. But can we obey? And as we obey, know that we will experience God's faithful provision, that we will experience God's blessing. And the more we press in with him, the more he will reveal his heart and his will to us. And he will lead us in his paths of righteousness. He will lead us ever more greatly into what he's calling us to. And as we do that, may we never forget to stop and pause and ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for 
your gifts and calling that are without repentance. How grateful we are that you give us the examples of the heroes of the faith, but above that, your fidelity and your faithfulness and your grace and provision in the call that you place upon us and every believer. So, Lord, I pray in this season of Lent, in these 40 days, that, first of all, we would begin with repentance. Lord, forgive us for where we've not been fully yielded to you. Lord, I pray, show me, show us, show us as a church family, but where we need to be more fully surrendered to you, where we need to walk in trust and obedience to you in greater measure. Lord, may we never set out to make a name for ourselves to receive the praise of human beings in the world around us. But may we set out to be obedient and faithful to your will and your call as you continue to reveal it more fully to us. So give us grace to do that. Lord, pour in your grace in a way that reassures and strengthens and builds us up in our trust of you. And Lord, as you do that, because you are the one that does it, not us, may we be sure to offer you the worship that is due your name. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. In Jesus' name, amen.